0: Gonna return this morning to uh, the story of our rebuilders. Brian, if you put on the the picture of of the six rebuilders, I'm gonna just reintroduce them quickly. You guys remember from left to right here, we have Zerubbabel, we have Joshua, we have Haggai, we have Zechariah, we have Ezra, and over on the right side, we have Nehemiah. Six men who played key roles in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after that city had lain in ruins for many, many years, a couple of generations worth. And there are lessons in their stories for us, lessons as we consider areas of our lives that lie in ruin. God is still raising up rebuilders among his people. I wanna talk today about the rebuilders prayer and begin by um, passing this along In, in 2017, The Barna Group, which is a Christian-oriented research agency, the Barna Group published the results of a study that they had done on the prayer lives of Americans. And that study found in part that among Americans who reported that they pray on a regular basis, 94% of them said that most of their prayer took place when they were alone. They mostly pray by themselves and 82% of them reported that most of their prayer was done in silence. So typically, they were praying without actually audibilizing any words. Now, I would imagine, in fact, mathematically, it has to be the case that there's quite a bit of carryover between those groups. In other words, we we can surmise that the majority of prayer, at least in America, according to this study, is people spending time Alone in silence. The overwhelming majority of prayers being prayed in this nation is people by themselves in silence praying in their minds. Now I want to be quick to say there is nothing wrong with praying alone. The Bible records many instances of Jesus praying alone. He used to do it quite regularly, he prayed with people too. But we know that he prayed alone. So there's certainly nothing wrong with praying alone. And I would add that there's nothing wrong with praying silently. As a matter of fact, in some of the scripture we're going to look at today, we're going to see instances where the Rebuilders prayed silently. But when we pray alone and silent, and when that style of prayer represents the overwhelming majority of our prayer experience, as it seems to do as this study suggests, then I don't think we're really plumbing the depths of what a prayer life ought to be. If prayer is supposed to be a powerful experience in our lives, then maybe we're not really tapping into the full measure of that power. And that leads me, you're gonna to have to indulge me here for a moment, but it, it leads me to one of my biggest pet peeves. Can I have a pet peeve moment? I plan to have two or three over the course of the message. Uh, here's my first one, it's, it's, it's this phrase, you've heard me talk about it before, but it's so prevalent in our society, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. We talk so much about thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and it's kind of just one word. We talk about sending out thoughts and prayers, or sometimes we just, we, we comment on somebody's social media post. thoughts and prayers. I've even seen it as a hashtag, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Let me say this about that. Let's start at the back end of that saying. Thoughts and prayers. Right, prayers. I'm pro-prayer. Like news break here, right? The pastor is in favor of prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying. And likewise, there's nothing wrong with thinking positively or or having somebody on your mind if you know they're going through a difficult circumstance. As a matter of fact, when we communicate to people, saying to somebody, hey, you've been on my mind lately. Or saying to somebody that you know is going to go through a difficult circumstance, hey, when you go in to see the doctor this week, I'm gonna be thinking about you. Those things, that can be a powerful way of communicating love, of communicating care and concern. There's nothing wrong with them. But here's where it bugs me. Where it bugs me is that these two things, thoughts and prayers, have been rolled up and combined into one thing. And in my mind, They're both fine, they just don't belong together. They're not the same category, they aren't the same things. Here's what I mean by that. You might like bologna. I don't, I think it's disgusting, and if you make me eat it, I will throw up. But you might like bologna. There are plenty of people who would say, hey, guilty pleasure, fried bologna sandwich, right? You might like bologna. And if you like bologna, God bless you, you're entitled to all the bologna you want. But nobody goes to the restaurant and orders the lobster and bologna platter, right? That's not a thing because lobster, fresh lobster and fried bologna do not belong together. They're not the same category. Restaurants don't serve that. It's just not the same. You're welcome to like them both if you like, but don't put them together. That is not surf and turf. But, here's where I get back to thoughts and prayers. If, as the study suggests, most people limit their prayer lives to just sitting by themselves silently, in silence, with presumably their needs on their mind, then I guess I understand how the whole thoughts and prayers thing got started. I think I understand a little bit more why so many of us are so quick to assume that it's basically the same thing and those two things belong together. A prayer life that consists entirely of sitting alone and thinking about your needs really isn't much different than just sending good thoughts. And the thing about it is, if we're gonna be rebuilders, if we've done like what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, if we've walked among the ruins, and if we've dared to believe that God can rebuild, then we're gonna need to actually pray. We're gonna need to actually pray. Sending good thoughts is fine, but it will not suffice on its own. Prayer, and I mean real prayer, is absolutely necessary. It's an absolutely necessary weapon in the arsenal of a rebuilder. So let's look at some ways that the rebuilders wield that weapon first prayer I want to share with you is what I call the prayer of repentance. Repentance, you've heard me say this before, means turning around. There's a very literal image of going one way and turning around and going the other way. That's repentance. It's the word that we use to describe the experience of acknowledging that something is wrong or something is bad, and so I'm going to turn away from it. Repentance implies that our perspective has changed so much that we're no longer willing to tolerate whatever was wrong. I mentioned bologna a few minutes ago and I've talked about this in in terms of repentance before, so bear with me if you remember me saying this. I hate bologna now, I used to love bologna. When I was a little boy, I ate a bologna sandwich for lunch every day of my life. And then one day I got sick and my bologna came back. And from that day to this, I cannot stand the smell, the sight, or the taste of bologna. It makes me nauseous. I have repented from baloney. The very thing that I used to want and desire and love now makes me sick, that's repentance. I have changed my attitude about baloney. Repentance is an inescapable part of the rebuilder. You cannot rebuild unless first you're willing to acknowledge that something is wrong, that something needs rebuilding. It means something is broken. The very act of rebuilding says, this thing is broken, but it shouldn't be. And it doesn't need to be. It can be rebuilt. We saw that last week. Remember the stories I told last week about walking among the ruins. The people of Jerusalem in Haggai's day didn't mind seeing the temple in ruins until Haggai showed up and started saying, this isn't right, but it can be different. That's how repentance begins. And in the same way, the people in in Nehemiah's day didn't mind seeing the walls in ruin. They got used to it. They saw it all the time. It didn't bother them until Nehemiah showed up and said, this isn't right, but it can change. And then their attitudes toward the wall changed. And they said, yeah, let's do this good work. That's how repentance begins. In both cases, it took the repentant heart of a rebuilder to recognize that it was time to change what was wrong. It was time to change the things that everybody else had seemed to just get used to over time. Perspective had to change first. Today, let's take a look at Ezra. When Ezra arrived, the city was actually in pretty good shape. Now, the walls weren't rebuilt yet, but the temple was up. The homes were built. Life was kind of getting back to normal-ish. That's when Ezra arrived. Now remember, Ezra wasn't a construction worker. He was a scribe. He was a priest. He was a historian. And his purpose wasn't to build with brick and mortar. His purpose was to teach the law, to rebuild their lives. He was sent to retrain the Israelites in their understanding of how to live godly lives. Shortly after Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem, he discovered that many of the Israelite men living in Jerusalem had taken wives from the pagan tribes that surrounded them. And that was in direct violation of God's law. Now, I need to have a parenthesis here. Can we just have a quick parenthesis? Because this is important here. God had said to the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, actually he had told them when they first got there as the promised land, he said, I don't want you to take spouses from other nations, from the other tribes that will be your neighbors. I don't want you to take spouses there. And Ezra arrived to discover that many of the men had chosen wives from neighboring tribes. Here's, here's my parentheses. God does not have a problem with racial intermarriage. Okay? There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. Although stories like this one throughout history have, in various times and various places, been used to promote various kinds of racism. That is not what's going on here. But God was, and he still is, opposed to his people uniting themselves in marriage to someone who doesn't share their commitment to their faith and commitment to their faith aligned along nationalistic lines in this day. And that's why he said, you can't just go find a Canaanite and marry her, okay? Because God was and still is opposed to his people uniting themselves in marriage with people who don't share their commitment to their faith. So singles, young singles, not so young singles, anyone who might surmise that perhaps there's a marriage in their future, take note of this. The issue isn't whether or not your partner is kind of okay with you pursuing your faith. Because there were plenty of people in those tribes next to Jerusalem who would have been okay with an Israelite worshiping Yahweh. They would have been more than happy to build an altar to Yahweh and put it right next to their other altars. The issue is whether or not that person you're with shares the level of your commitment to God and God alone. And short of that, you just can't expect God's blessing on your marriage. Parentheses over. Back to the story. In any case, this intermarriage situation is the situation that Ezra discovers. Many of the men of Jerusalem had essentially abandoned their commitment to God in favor of the good-looking women from the tribe next door. And Ezra found out about this and he prays a prayer of repentance. Look at what he says. It's in Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. He prays this. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads. Isn't that a great image? Our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. And you can go on and read the rest of Ezra's prayer. Essentially, he says this. He says, God, you've shown us grace, but we've ignored you. And because of our sin, we have forfeited so many of the blessings that you desire to give us. And Ezra goes on and on and on and he stands before God and as if he's in a courtroom, he pleads guilty. That's what he does. He says, God, we're guilty. He pleads guilty on behalf of the entire Israelite nation. Now I want to just highlight this and perhaps you've picked up on this. Ezra was not married to a woman from another race, from another nation, from another culture or another religion. He was not individually guilty of this sin. And yet he says, we, we have sinned. We, we, we. He consistently speaks in the first person plural. He wasn't married to a foreign woman. And not every Israelite man was either. If you read on in Ezra, he'll actually give you a list of exactly who was. And it wasn't everybody. But he consistently says we. He says this people, us, we, together, we have sinned. I think that's so important when it comes to the prayer of repentance. You see, instead of recognizing the problem and rooting out the offenders, turning and pointing the finger and accusing and saying, You, this is your problem. Why did you do this to us? Instead of doing that, Ezra repents. He confesses. Church, I think there's a tremendous application here that frankly the church today is missing. The church in America today is missing. And it has to do with our situation and our attitude towards politics, national politics, right? Everybody, hmm. Mm, getting off my soapbox. Give me a moment. There, now I'm better. Not everybody. So many among us are so quick to point the finger and say, you know what? It's those filthy Democrats that have ruined this country for us or it's those filthy Trumpers and his people, the Republicans, that have ruined this nation for us. I don't see that pattern in the Bible. I don't see that it's them, it's them, it's them. I hear the heart of a rebuilder saying it's us. It's us. It's us. And I think the church in America today is woefully short on rebuilders who would pray prayers of repentance. You know, we see it in the language we speak all the time, Four or five years ago, after the inauguration, all over, not my president, not my president, and now we're seeing it from the opposite wing of the political world, right? Not my president, can I say this? He's your president. Speaking of both elections, he's your president. You might not like that he got elected, you might not like how he got elected, but he's your president, he's your president. We see this so many ways in the way people talk about in the way people talk about the situation, "This is not who we are." I've seen that phrase again and again. We see pictures of violence, we see pictures of protests, we see pictures of things that we don't agree with. And, and, and the church is so quick to say, "This is not who we are." I'm sorry to put it this way. This is who we are. This is who we are. And until we're willing to repent of who we are, this is who we will remain to be. Look, you may not have individually partaken in whatever act it is that you're trying to distance yourself from, I hope you haven't. But separating ourselves from the reality of the ruins is not how walls get rebuilt. Separating, trying, distancing ourselves and saying, well, we're okay. It's all of them that have caused the problem. That's not how repentance works. And so Ezra, the man of God, stands before God and says, God, this is who we are. And he repents of it. That's the prayer of repentance. Repentance. You can read on, I encourage you, this isn't really in the purview of what I have time to share, but read on in Ezra's prayer and you'll see that it's contagious. He starts out praying alone, but people begin to join him and this repentance, this confession is contagious and the nation joins him and that's when the rebuilding is ready to begin. We need to be less concerned about telling people who we are and more focused on showing people. Who we are. Let's go on and look at another powerful prayer. It's the prayer of petition. Petition, the word petition means to ask. It's a prayer where we ask God for things, and I think it's what most of us think about when we think about prayer. Nehemiah has one of the best examples of a prayer of petition, not just among the rebuilders, but in the entire story of the Bible. See, Nehemiah, you might recall, he was a very high-ranking official. He was cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire, which means he was one part servant, but one part counselor, uh, one part friend, kind of like a cabinet position. Uh, of, of service within, within the king's court. And while he was back in the king's court, in the service of the king, that's when he heard about the situation in Jerusalem. And when he heard about that, he prayed. He records his prayer for us in Nehemiah chapter one, beginning in verse five, he's praised this way. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. What he's saying is, God, listen up, because I'm about to ask you something. God, listen up. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer I am praying. When? Just this once? No, he says day and night. Now, he doesn't record every time that he prays. But the inference here is that Nehemiah prayed repeatedly. He's saying, God, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot. So please listen, because there's something I need to ask you. And he goes on in his prayers. Again, I encourage you to go and read it. What does he do? He confesses of sins, just like Ezra, right? He begins with repentance, but he goes on to ask for help. He asks God to forgive the sins of the Israelites. He asks God to provide for the safety of the Israelites living in Jerusalem. And he very specifically asks God to help him get the help of the king. He says, God, I'm going to talk to the king about this, and I want you to give me favor with that king so that there's something that I can do. He has very specific requests. And here's my favorite part. He gets what he asks for. Let me change the emphasis there. He gets what he asks for. Remember my soapbox issue on thoughts and prayers. This is a perfect example of what I was saying. There are plenty of people that were thinking about the trouble in Jerusalem. There were plenty of people who were thinking about all the bad things that were going on there. That's how Nehemiah found out about it in the first place. Others who had seen it were thinking about it, and when they made their way back to Nehemiah, they happened to mention that it was on their mind. Plenty of people were thinking about it, Nehemiah was praying about it, and that's when things changed. It was a response to the petition of his prayer that that started things in motion. James chapter 4, verse 2, way in the New Testament, hundreds of years after our rebuilding stories, James writes, you do not have because you do not ask God. If you memorize that verse in in the King James, ye have not because ye ask not. You do not have because you didn't ask God. It doesn't say you do not have because it wasn't on your mind or you do not have because you weren't thinking about it. You do not have because you do not ask. Thoughts can orient our mind in helpful ways. They can motivate us towards compassion or even action in some circumstances, but that only gets us so far. It takes actual prayer to move the hand of God. So let's not be so casual in the way we talk about prayer. How many times have we heard each other say, you know, I've really been praying about such and such. And then we dig a little deeper and we find out that that's not really what I meant when I said I've really been praying about such and such. What I mean is, well, it's been on my mind a lot and I'm kind of hoping that maybe God will decide to fix it. But so often we haven't actually stopped what we're doing. Like Nehemiah stopped what he was doing and specifically asked God to move and then do it again and then do it again, and then do it again. Remember, Nehemiah says the prayer that I am praying to you day and night. Petition, petition, petition. Let's not confuse thoughts with prayers because Rebuilders know the difference. Nehemiah modeled another important prayer of the Rebuilder, and it's what I wanna call the prayer of opportunity. See, after Nehemiah petitioned God, Specifically for help from the king, he went to see the king. He took action. He went and started to put that plan into motion. He went to see the king and he told the king about the problems back in Jerusalem. And he told the king how deeply concerned he was. And look at what happened next. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? The king actually was like, ooh, that sounds like a big deal. Is there something I can do for you? what is it you want? And Nehemiah says, and then I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I answered the king. Can you picture that conversation? Can you picture the interchange and what that must have been like right in the middle of the conversation? The king, Nehemiah, oh my goodness. I had no idea all of that was happening. What do you want? And Nehemiah goes, King, what I'd like is But he took that breath first and presumably silently, he offered a quick little dart of prayer saying, God bless the conversation I'm about to have, lead my words, guide me here. Thank you, Lord. And then he spoke a quick, silent prayer before he answered the king. He had the opportunity to speak, but he turned it into an opportunity to pray. You never know when you're going to have an opportunity to pray. I think chances are we don't even realize how many opportunities for quick prayer there are in every moment of our lives. Back to the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 says, "Pray continually." That's the entire verse. Two words in the entire verse. Some of you think you can't memorize scripture. I want you to say those two words. Pray continually. Congratulations, you just memorized a Bible verse. Okay, pray continually. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what I want to say. What if we took that literally? What if we took that literally? What if we literally never stopped praying? What if we outlawed the phrase, in Jesus' name, amen? Which, by the way, you don't need to say at the end of your prayers. Some people think it means let's start eating. That's not, (laughs) okay? What if we just never said in Jesus' name, amen? What if we prayed continually? What if we, again, I'm going to go back to the old school translation, prayed without ceasing. In the 17th century, there was a Carmelite monk who's known to history by the name Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence wrote a short book. You can still get it on Amazon for about three or four bucks. I I recommend it. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And in this book, this man detailed his efforts to never stop praying, to live literally every moment of his life with a conscious awareness of God's presence. I think the issue here is that rebuilders recognize how essential God's involvement is in the rebuilding process. And so they never want to pass up an opportunity to pray. They never speak or act of their own volition. Instead, they want every moment to reflect God's plan for the rebuilding process. One last prayer I want to highlight today, and it's what I'm calling the prayer of silence. One of the questions I get asked most often about prayer has to do with the supposed conflict or what we sometimes see as the conflict between the necessity of prayer, right? Like most people are like, I get it. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray. I understand that. But on the other hand, aren't we also people who believe in the supremacy of God, the authority of God? Don't we also say God is all powerful? And isn't that actually just a way of saying God gets what he wants, right? And sometimes we get confused and it boils down to this issue. If God already knows what he's going to do, then why am I praying? People have different ways of kind of asking that question or navigating through that, but it's something that I hear a lot in the questions that we have about how prayer is supposed to work. If God already knows what he's going to do, then Why am I praying, or what am I praying for, or how am I praying? And my response to that question essentially is this, we pray because God already knows what he's going to do. The fact that God already knows what he's going to do doesn't mean so I don't have to pray, that's actually exactly the reason I am praying. Because, see, God does know what he's going to do. God is sovereign. God is in control. My job is to get on board with what God is doing. And how on earth would I know what that was unless I had spent time in prayer? Unless I had spent time in prayer. The key, though, is that in my prayer, I need to leave room. I need to leave time for silence to listen to God in prayer. Zachariah was a rebuilder. He's on the screen. I love this picture of Zachariah. Lydia, you nailed it. He's the encourager. He's the one cheerleading everybody on. He's like, he's got this heart that says, God can do great things. Let's keep going. <laughs> Zachariah was a rebuilder who recognized that the inability to listen to God was hampering the rebuilding efforts. Remember, he appeared on the scene in the story at a time when the rebuilding wasn't going so well. Some of the rebuilders were really, really frustrated when Zachariah was there. They felt like they had prayed a lot about this, but God wasn't answering. But in fact, what was happening was that they had not been listening to God. They may have prayed an awful lot, but they weren't listening to God, There were things in their lives that they were doing that were in direct opposition to what God had already told them. And so as they express their frustration to Zechariah, Zechariah speaks to them on God's behalf. Look at what he says. Now, this is God speaking, but using Zechariah as his mouthpiece. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 13. God says, when I called, they didn't listen. So when they called, I would not listen. This is a really sobering reality. When we stop listening to God, eventually he stops listening to us. When we stop listening to God, eventually he stops listening to us. And that's why we need to make time in our prayers for silence. Learn to be comfortable with shutting out the noise of life for a little bit every day and just letting God know, hey, I'm listening. Now, chances are you're not going to hear an audible voice the first time you do that. And if you do, I'd kind of like to hear about that. You may not even sense a specific word or direction at first. You might just be uncomfortably silent, but the discipline of the prayer of silence makes you available to God, and that's where Rebuilder wants to be, right? It makes you available to God. Sometimes in my busy schedule, people will say to me, hey, we need to talk, we need to talk. Um, Could we talk tomorrow afternoon? And I'll say, yeah, I would be happy to take your call anytime between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. I got a 1 o'clock meeting and I got a 4 o'clock meeting. But anytime between 2 and 4, if you call, I will be there. And that way they know if they need me, they can get a hold of me then. Now, look, if God calls, drop whatever it is you're doing and answer the phone, right? Let's acknowledge that as a starting point. But by the same token, telling God, Lord, I'm here, I'm here, I'm yours. If you need something, you know where you can find me. I think this is wonderful, sometimes lost discipline in our prayer lives. Making ourselves available to God is essential if we're going to be rebuilding. Let's wrap this thing up. It's probably more than just a little bit of a cliche for the pastor to stand in the pulpit and say, Church, we need to pray more. Today, I'm going to embrace the cliche. Church, we need to pray more. We need to pray more. Individually, we need to pray more. We need to pray through every task we undertake during the day. We need to pray silently. But... We also need to pray out loud. We need to call one another and pray together. Not just say, oh yeah, I'm going to be praying for you. And not just to talk about the things that need to be prayed for. How quickly does a prayer meeting turn into a gossip clutch, right? Where we're just talking about all the things. Let's not be that people. Let's actually pray. We just need to pray and church collectively, together, in community, we need to pray more. Now there are already multiple opportunities to pray in groups as part of the HRCC family every week. And as time goes on, we we add more structured opportunities. For instance, I talked about it in the announcement, we're praying uh, on a regular basis uh, relative to our church plant. We're adding opportunities. Church, we need to be more committed to these times. But you don't necessarily need the pastor to tell you when those times are. There's nothing stopping you from getting on a, a, what do you call it when a bunch of people call each other all the time? Yeah, a prayer line. What's the word I'm thinking? A little group chat, a little Zoom session, a little uh, whatever it is. There's nothing stopping you from getting in touch with, with two or three or four other people and saying, hey, could we just take 15 minutes and pray together? Right? We need to pray together more and more. Can I call a couple of groups out? Yeah, I can. I told you I'd be all over my soapbox today. Young people, And I'll include myself in that. You can debate me later if you want. Young people, we need to stop outsourcing our prayer to the seniors. It's not their job. It's ours. Stop outsourcing your prayer to a different demographic. We need to pray more. Husbands, and I'll include myself in that demographic. Don't debate me on it. I have paperwork. (laughs) Husbands, we need to stop outsourcing prayer to our wives. Somehow in our culture, in many, not all, not all families, but in many families, it's become, that's the thing. Oh, the wife will pray about it. I got to go to work and mow the lawn and hunt squirrels, right? We need to stop outsourcing our prayer, men, to our wives and our kids. We need to pray more. New believers... We need to stop outsourcing our prayer to the people who sound more eloquent when they pray. Look, Angie, I, you, you're right in front of me, so I'm picking on you. I could listen to Angie Vogel, one of our deacons, pray all day long, right? We get in a small group, Angie will start praying, and I'm just like taking notes. Hallelujah, glory. I mean, it sounds like God has anointed that tongue for that time of prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm not making fun I'm blessed when Angie prays. I can think of other people throughout this congregation. Man, when they pray, they've just got, and the Bible talks about this, and a spiritual gift for that moment that stirs up my faith. But Angie, we can't outsource our prayer to you. Keep praying, Angie. But we need to pray too. It's our responsibility, not hers. You might not feel like you can put two words together coherently in a time of prayer. Then just pray one word, right? Then just pray one. Then just pray one. Then maybe pray one more. We cannot outsource our prayer to somebody that we think happens to do a better job of it. That's just not how God works, church. We need to pray more. We need to pray more. And in these days, especially, is I think many of us are just kind of recognizing the reality of ruins and what that looks like in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, in our churches, and in society at large, we need to pray. Rebuilders pray, it's what they do. You cannot presume to rebuild if you're not plugged into the heart of God through prayer. The time for good thoughts is over. Now is the time for prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father. Father, we confess that we are a broken people. To presume to follow the examples of rebuilders is an admission of guilt It is an acknowledgement that there is rubble in our lives and that there are ruins that need to be rebuilt. We repent. Lord, we repent. We repent of our arrogance. We repent of the ways in which we have sought solutions other than you. We repent of our pride. Father, we live in a broken world. It is no less broken today than it ever has been. And we need a move of the Holy Spirit. God, we are hungry We are hungry for that today. And so we are asking you, God, we are petitioning you today. Would you not be distant from your people? Would you reach out and even now begin to breathe a fresh wind and ignite a fresh fire in the hearts of your people? Father, we are praying do a new thing in this generation. Father, do a new thing in this year, in this season. Father, we, the people of HRCC, begin to pray to you right now. And we ask that you would do a new thing in this church. I pray, Lord, that this coming year, that these coming months would be a time of breakthrough. As Nehemiah prayed for favor with the King, I pray that you would give this congregation favor with lost people in our communities as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, would you prepare a harvest for these workers? Would you prepare a harvest of souls? Father, we pray for revival in this place. Father, we do not see ruins that will remain desolate forever, but we see a future. We see, come on, Lord, I haven't even preached this point yet, but we hear the voice of the Spirit saying, you haven't seen anything yet. The glory of the days yet in front of you, far outshines the glory of the days behind you. We ask you today, Lord, make it so. Make it so. Father, we reconstruct lives. We pray today for broken marriages. God, that they would be back together. Lord, we pray for for broken relationships. God, I, I have a burden today to pray for prodigals in our families, those who have walked away from you. Lord, would you bring us back together? Would you call back a remnant of your people to Jerusalem? We are not destroyed. We are not destroyed. Remember your people today, we pray. Father, Remember your people today. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that surround us moment by moment. That we would never neglect the presence of God. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Surround us with your presence, we pray. And Lord, just in the interest of modeling what we have seen in the lives of these Rebuilders, we want to pause just in silence and wait on your presence. Let's do just that, church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are worthy, God. You are holy. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy, Lord. We love you. We love you, Lord. We love you. We love you, we love you Lord Jesus. Speak, Lord. Speak what is true. Speak what is true. Holly Holly Behold our hearts, Lord, and speak to us what is true. We are bombarded every moment by lies and conspiracies and falsehoods. Speak what is true and find us faithful and obedient. We praise you for your goodness and your glory. We praise you, Lord, for your surpassing power. We praise you for your mercy, which is without end. And we submit ourselves to your purposes and to your will. Have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen, amen. Amen. God bless you, stay warm. We'll see you next Sunday.